You're listening to the GNU World Order, episode 376. We have finished the M, as in Mike, section from the AP package set of Slackware, and are beginning the N, as in November, section today, in this very episode. If you're, if you're new to the show, or you've just completely forgotten what the show is about, we go through, or rather, I should say, lately we've been going through the every single package installed on a Slackware install process, Slackware Linux install. I should probably mention from time to time, just for people who kind of come into the who've come into the show recently, this isn't actually what the show is. This is not a show dedicated to just talking about the packages that get installed on Slackware Linux. It, it's normally just me talking about whatever Linux topic I I want to talk about. It just so happens that about a year ago, I got it into my head that I should talk about every single package installed by default on Slackware, and that's what we've been doing ever since. But when I'm finished with Slackware, uh, like all the packages on Slackware, when I we, when we reach that final package set, we will the, the show will go back to its its sort of normal format of just me talking whatever happens to be on my mind. And frankly, I mean, you've probably seen a little bit of that already because sometimes I do deviate a little bit from the topic. I just wanted to kind of make that clear for people who are kind of new-ish to the show. And in this episode, we're going to start out with a little bit of listener email, in fact. So let's look at this email from James, or Jim, as his friends call him, I assume. And he says um, that MC was written by, uh, at least originally, was written by Miguel de Casa, who you may or may not know from uh, as the creator or the, the progenitor of the GNOME desktop very early on. Of course, it's been taken over by other people now, but also the Mono project, which is the open source re-implementation of the .NET project, which was started before .NET became open source itself. That's why that exists. Okay, so that's kind of interesting to know about, I guess. Uh, it was created in 1994, Midnight Commander was. Kind of kind of interesting. Let's see, so the, um, the last podcast, I, I kept saying the term MPEG-3, which is a weird mistake for me to make because I'm I'm quite aware, actually, that there is no MPEG-3. Uh, there was an MPEG-2 and an MPEG-4, and MPEG-3 was skipped over. MP-3, of course, is actually an MPEG-2 audio transport layer 3, as James points out. So I'm not entirely sure why I made that error, especially since MP-3 and MPEG-3 are the same number of syllables, so it's not it's not as if, though, I was just trying to shorten it. Very strange. I, I think I was just probably too busy complaining about MPEG in general to um, get the naming conventions correct, correct, which was kind of silly of me. But thanks, James, for the correction and the clarification. And then James closes the email saying that he, he may have used Norton Commander briefly back in his DOS and Windows days, uh, he doesn't he he doesn't seem positive that that was a thing for him. But he does remember something called Directory Opus on his Amigas. It was a two-panel file mover that had preview modes for media files, so you could see uh, if the, for instance, Billy picture was the same picture as Billy123. It helped with deduping drives back when they measured drives in megabytes. A single picture could easily use, like, 2% of that 80 megabyte primary hard drive. And this was the, the really, I think, this was the interesting part 
for me of this of this email to be honest because these these little software applications these little applications that existed back in the let's call it 80s and 90s i feel like is the region of time that I'm talking about, give or take. But there were these little applications, you know. And if you go far back enough, there there was a thing called shareware, and and I don't know other things like postcardware, and you know all sort of any any prefix followed by w a r e. But I I feel like there's a certain nostalgia for that for a computer user who was around at all at that time or had around and had a computer um either a computer user in their home or or had a computer in their home and even that statement right there is a little bit weird you know to 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 qualify oh well you would have had to been around at that time and you would have had to have a computer no one's ever going to say that about someone living in i don't know 20 2010 onward maybe like you're not going to i mean well certainly 2010 for computers but i i'm even thinking of just like a mobile device 2010 onwards no one's going to ever say well you would have had to been alive in 2015 and you would have had to have a computer or a cell phone yeah that's it's a given right so it's so funny that in just just as recent as the 1980s we had we we have to qualify what uh what 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 group of people some some computer specific memory can apply to so if you were around back then you didn't have to be very old you just had to know someone with a computer then you may have memories of of these little bits of software that just kind of popped up in one form or another whether you're you're old enough to remember them like on floppy disks at a vintage not a vintage computer store a uh, computer they would have at that time they would have just been a computer store you wouldn't have called it a vintage computer store um it was the future uh the computer store or whether it's something that you know someone downloaded from a bbs or however they appear there was a lot of there were little bits of software out there just kind of appearing all over the place i mean people programmed them they didn't just literally just appear but i mean they cropped up people programmed them and put them on a disk or put them on a server or whatever bbs is run off of i guess it must have been some kind of server anyway um well I mean, yes i mean by definition it would be a server so uh you you put the thing on some media and you send it out into the world and people use it and a lot of those people like people who wrote that software like this one directory opus for the amiga they'll never know that james was a user of directory opus they don't know that he loved directory opus i mean i don't know that he loved it either he didn't say he loved it he just said he did use it but let's pretend for a moment that james loved directory opus it was a game changer i mean it would it allowed him to preview his media files that was huge probably at that time and so you 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 have this little software thing that probably james and you know all i don't know 200 other amiga users or or 200,000 i don't know how popular amigas were uh, compared to anything else but some some subsection of some section of computer users some subset of computer users who were amiga users and who used directory opus those are the people who had that experience nobody else does nobody else can say oh yeah, I used to use directory opus on the Amiga. And there's something about that. There's something about that almost, uh, if I'm not over-romanticizing it, sort of the privilege of being able to be someone to experience that along with other people and the developer the developer of the software. That's something that none of us, you and me, dear listener, we can't go back 
and experience that. We could maybe get an Amiga, a vintage Amiga, or we could run, what is it, Risk OS? I think that's what it's called. They really just call it Risk OS after the architecture? That's weird. Um, but we could get, you know, like a re-implementation of the Amiga software, or do you even have to do that? Maybe the, the Amiga thing, maybe that, um, I think that might still actually be produced. I think that's actually a thing. I think you can go to, um, yes, AmigaOS.net. So you can, you could do this. You can make this happen. You can go purchase uh, Amiga OS, apparently. It's not open source, so don't, don't get too excited about this. Um, and, and run the Amiga operating system, I guess, and, and maybe find a copy of directory opus and so on. So we can re, we can capture the spirit of it, but we cannot actually experience it at the time. And I think, I feel, I guess this is literally, I guess this is the, um, this, this is the end of, or this is the realization, the culmination of the fear of missing out. Right? That is exactly what people are talking about when they say, I don't want to miss out on something. That's, that's what, if you look back at, at shareware or, or whatever else kind of wear, freeware, whatever they called it back then, it, we missed out on that, or some of us did. I mean, James didn't. He was there. He did it. Um, other people weren't there, weren't at the same place, and so we have missed out on that, and, and that's fascinating to me. And I feel the same kind of sort of sense of, of, of loss or something or, or, or whatever, uh, when I think back at early Linux, even though deep down I know that I would never have survived in the early Linux world, maybe I would if I'd been like at a different, like if I was where I am now and Linux was just appearing, I think then yes, I could have survived early Linux if early Linux was just now. But true early Linux and where I was in my life and my understanding of computers and my interest in computers and so on, it just wouldn't have worked. And I'm really, you know, technically quite happy that I missed out on early Linux because number one, I think it probably would have spoiled me in a bad way. You know, it kind of would have it would have put me off of Linux. I would have thought, okay, this is stupid. I'll never look at this again. So I, th I think that would have been a real danger. Uh, and, and also, I just, I feel like I would have probably, if, if I'd stuck with it, I would have spent a lot of time on it. And that I don't think I would have gotten what I needed at the time. Because I just, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, th I would have had to adjust a lot of things in life. So, you know, it, it would be like, it would just spur, it would, it would spawn a completely different timeline, essentially, for my life. And it would be, it would be a lot different. Probably a lot better, frankly. <laughs> but um, but that's not how it happened. But it's it's really cool that those that, that experience exists back in time and out there, and people have had those experiences. And I, it it it's just something that I urgently feel kind of the need to hear and capture the stories of. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe at some point, who knows? Maybe I'll bug all of you probably uh if you're listening to this maybe i'll bug you for for your story for for your retro computer story and then compile it into a book or something and put it on smashwords and take all the profits um and and become rich for with all the the three people who purchased the book um and and that's just it's just like this computer history i guess which normally i don't technically care about I don't think it's the hardware that I really care about all that much. I mean, I do have a healthy respect for it. You know, when I see an old computer, I often do think, oh, that is that is very cool to see what what computers looked by, like back at that time and to imagine what it would be like to, to use that particular computer. But frankly, the hardware is not really that exciting to me because I have 
very few memories of 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 what it was like to use that hardware because I just wasn't that into computers. Uh, and and when I look at it, I just see it doesn't run or it wasn't running Linux at the time, and that that really kind of kills my interest. If if it's retro hardware like a Sun Microsystem or something, okay, that's a little bit more intriguing to me. That that that's interesting. But just a, a 486. A 580 was was there a 586? I don't even know. Were there computers that were called 586s? I know there's an architecture 586, but was that a computer? Could you go and say, hey, I want to buy a 586? Because I know you could do that. I think for a 486 and a 286 or something like that. See, I don't know what I'm talking about. Point is, what really interests me, I think, are the experiences of the people relating to everything, but but particularly software, very frequently software. Now, the, the important thing here, that the actual takeaway that I'm trying to get to here is that I feel like open source is successfully recapturing that, that event, that happening, that, that sensation of discovery, if you let it. And, and I think it, it's, a, it's a huge, great, neat, big deal that you can actually use open source as more or less a mindless drone and just fall into stuff. Like, you could actually, you can get into open source today and use all of the obvious applications and never sort of realize that there are hundreds and thousands of other software application uh, options out there for you that you could be using instead. You could absolutely pick up an ISO image of your favorite distribution, and if you don't have one, that it could be someone else's favorite distribution, you know, just the person you met who told you about Linux, and you want, you, you decided to emulate them. You thought, well, they seem smart on computers. I want to be that smart. I'm going to use what they're using. So you download FUBAR Linux and run it, and you, you just use whatever they have in their repository. You use whatever they provide you on the desktop. Maybe you probably find a couple of neat little discoveries uh, in whatever app store is offered to you. But generally speaking, you find the really, really obvious replacements for the thing that you did on your other computer, and that's kind of your life. And even when you start branching out and you start going into some other unexpected dir- direction because of the freedom that open source has afforded you, even then, you're, you're going in obvious directions. You know, you, you look at, if you decide to go into music make, making, you look at Ardor, nothing wrong with Ardor, um, you look at LMMS, nothing wrong with LMMS, but you never look at non, N-O-N. Um, you, you never look at uh, AJ Snapshot for your um, Jack Session snapshots, you know, that sort of thing. You just, you never find those little ones because you're using, there is enough hype, I guess, around the obvious ones. And it's great. That's so exciting that open source is in that place where there are obvious options. That's I think really, really huge. It's it's strangely huge that that's a big deal because what that means is that if I'm saying there are obvious options, I think that that's a lot different than saying, well, they're the only options. It's it's super satisfying to be able to say, oh yeah, well, this is the obvious choice for for music production, but there are you know five other ones that you could be using too. But this is the kind, this is the one that everyone goes with. That's it's really important. I mean, you you. you you can't say that for everything all the time. You know, sometimes there are simply, there's just, there are just the obvious, like the, the obvious one is the only one, practically. Um, so the fact that there are lots and lots of options out there, that's a healthy place to be. And 
it's great that people can get into open source and not deviate from those projects. And I think this kind of, this feeling, this desire manifests itself, especially in new users. And I know this was true for me where, you know, and I've talked about this before, where people look at open source at the, at the whole big messy community that open source is and, and says, well, you know, you'd get so much farther along if you would all just choose one thing and work on it together. And, you know, let's say there's a, um, there's a, I don't know, an image editor and people say, well, why are you doing this? You're just re-implementing, uh, GIMP. Why don't you just work on GIMP? Or there's a, a video editor and, and they say, well, why are you working on this video editor? Why don't you just go contribute to this other one? They, they are already so far along. Why don't you just work on that? You know, so there's this desire to focus and kind of organize and consolidate effort. But I think what the, the way that it actually happens, because ideally that won't happen. We don't actually want that. We think we want that sometimes. Like I say, especially when we're new to, to Linux, very excited about it. We just want good things to happen real quick. It just seems like, well, let's just all focus everything into laser beam precision and make this thing great. And that does sound really cool. It's just, unfortunately, it isn't exactly how software is developed. That's not quite how it works. But I think what does happen is over time, things do get the attention that they need. They do get the support that they need. They get the usage that they that they need. And those things start to, as the cliche goes, rise to the top. Brilliant. That's what we want. We want those things to get really good, to be well supported, for people to trust them. That's exactly the kind of, that. that's what we're after. But the other side to that is that there needs to be the little projects that probably aren't great for everyone, frankly. Maybe they're just too limited in scope. Maybe they're a little bit broken here and there, but you know, if you don't use that one feature, then you're okay. Maybe they're hyper-specific. Maybe they're hastily made. Uh, maybe they're not maintained anymore and you kind of have to go in and update some of the code yourself in order for it to build whatever the thing about it is that makes it not suitable for everybody as if for, for the people who are okay with that then it, it may very well make it the perfect tool for for somebody or for some set of people and i think that's the the spiritual successor to this idea of there being quirky little sharewares that pop up that probably don't last all that long in terms of maintenance and so on. Quirky little freeware applications that you get uh, from the, you know, have a floppy, give a floppy, need a floppy, take a floppy jar, you know? It's just, I don't know, like wherever you got freeware, um, these applications, these small little applications that you use and no one else you know, even within your open source community, wherever that is, they, they've never heard of it or they, they wouldn't touch it. They don't, they, don't, they don't need it. And maybe for some people that's Midnight Commander, which is, is how we got onto this topic in the first place. Uh, maybe for other people it's Password Store, the terminal-based password manager for Linux. Maybe for other people it's, I don't know, Credit, a encrypted text editor that I wrote of to interface with uh, GNU PG, so that your, all of your notes are um, are encrypted. But once you once you open them in, in the in the editor, it pipes it through GNU PG, stores it in temporary uh, file storage, lets you edit it, and then saves it back to an encrypted file. Or maybe it's something that you wrote. Maybe it's one of those custom little scripts, which, I mean, that's all credit really is for me. It, maybe it's one of those custom little scripts that you've got on your hard drive and have had it there for the past three years, five years, seven years, 13 years. Who knows? It's there. You use it. And that's your experience. And when you look back in 
10 years, 15 years, 20 years, that's going to be part of, of that experience. It's going to be part of the history of you on Linux back in the old 2020s or whatever. So yeah, it's it's kind of cool. Uh, and I think I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind and to, to value the little things, those little gems that you find throughout throughout the Linux ecosystem because they're here now and we, we ought to appreciate them. We ought to use them. We ought to have fun with them. And yeah, it's, it's going to be part of that tapestry when we look back. And that's really cool. It's not, it's not important. It's not ethically vital to remember them or anything like that. It's, it's just cool. It's just, it's just a neat part of being a computer geek. Another neat part of being a computer geek is that we can have coffee pretty much anytime we want. I don't know why that has anything to do with being a computer geek, actually. That's, it's, it has nothing to do with being a computer geek. It, in my case, it has everything to do with being a computer geek who gets to work remotely from home. But right now, that is pretty much anyone listening to this show, I'd wager. So why don't you go get yourself a cup of coffee? We'll come back. We'll talk about GNU Nano. You're back with coffee in hand. That's great to see. Well, of course, I can't see it. Uh, this is a podcast. Obviously, I, I can only hear it. But it, it's great to hear. We finished up the M section, as I said in the intro. So it's time to move on to the N section. That's in as in Nano. Nano is a text editor by the folks over at GNU. It's got a great website, honestly. If you go to nano-editor.org, you will be pleased with what you see. It is a slick, useful website. Go there. I highly recommend it, which is interesting because I don't highly recommend Nano. Uh, More on that in a moment. So the Nano project itself was started because of a few quote-unquote problems with the wonderfully easy-to-use and friendly Pico, P-I-C-O, text editor. So first and foremost, this is from the, uh, the, the readme on, 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 from the site. Uh, so first and foremost was the license, the Pico, or, or rather the Pine suite, and that's what Pico was, I guess, or from, rather. So Pine was the email, uh, application, and Pico is the, it was a text editor. But apparently it doesn't use the GPL, and, uh, it apparently had unclear restrictions on redistribution. This apparently has changed in recent years, according to this file. It says, uh, before using the Apache license. So that, to me, says that the Pine Suite is now Apache licensed. I didn't bother looking into it because I don't use either Pine or Pico and could not be bothered. Uh, but it says, because of this, Pine and Pico were not included in many GNU Linux distributions. Furthermore, some features like go to line number or search and replace were unavailable for a long time or required a command line flag. So it's a little bit clunky. That's what I'm getting from this. Nano sought to improve things by using the GPL, thereby becoming actual free software, capital F free. Free software, by the way, in case you're not aware of the subtlety between, for instance, the term free software and the term open source. Free software says that you must have the freedom to run the program as you wish for any purpose. You must have the freedom to study how the program works and to change it 
if you want to. You must have the freedom to redistribute the software, and you must have the freedom to distribute copies of your modified software. It's the four four pillars of free software, which which isn't necessarily, interestingly, guaranteed with open source software. Open source simply says that the source code is is available to look at. Doesn't necessarily mean that you can do anything with that with that code. Free software ensures that you have further freedoms than just being able to see some code, which is nice and important. That's why Nano exists. Furthermore, it uh, emulates the functionality of Pico as closely as reasonable, and of course provides extra functionality. So that's that's what Nano does. I am I I would say firmly of two minds about about Nano, and I am not by any means going to say that it makes any sense or that it's fair. I'm simply telling you sort of how I experience Nano and all the thoughts that go through my head when I am dealing with Nano or thinking about Nano. So right up front, I don't love Nano. It is not by... it it is a... I would, I would go so far as to say it was a text editor, editor that I avoid. Now that doesn't mean anything as dra- that sounds worse than it actually is. But if you give me the choice between Nano and, say, Jove, certainly Nano or Emacs, then I'm gonna choose Jove or Emacs or Micro Emacs or, or you know, something similar in that, in that vein over Nano. Then again, if you made me choose between Vim and Nano, then I would choose Nano. And, and these aren't judgments that I'm passing upon these text editors. I'm just being honest about what I prefer in a text editor. And and it just so happens that I enjoy a good Emacs-like experience over a Vim experience or a Nano experience. That's just where I am right now. Uh, it, and it doesn't mean anything about either of those editors or any other editor. It, it's, just, it's just what happens. When I sit down and I have to choose an editor to use, that's kind of the thought process. Or, the, or not even a thought process, it's really just a tendency. Sometimes I inexplicably open up, like, K-Write, or Kate. No idea why. Don't do it as often as I used to, but I used to kind of think that for some reason K-Write was sort of the only way to to take quick notes, like really quick, fast notes, just a just a, a scrap paper. It was it was K-Write. I don't know why. Emacs was for serious stuff. K-Write was for quick, quick jot, jotting down of quick notes. Very strange. Okay, so anyway, habits in front of computers notwithstanding, Nano really, really is not a bad editor. Like, it really isn't. I have used it. I have not hated it. It's just the little things that I don't bother learning on Nano that slow me down. And, that, and that's the, the only reason I don't, I don't enjoy it more than I do. Because, because every time I open it, I look at it, I see that it's by GNU, and I think to myself, it's exactly like Emacs. Not a problem. And it is a problem. It's not anything like Emacs. In fact, one of the common prefix key combinations in Emacs is control X. Control X on Nano quits. So I'm hitting control X all the time thinking, well, this is how I open a file, right? Control X, control F. No, that's how you quit the program. So yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, cutting a line on, on Emacs is the same as Nano. What I'm thinking of is searching. Searching for a, a word in Emacs doesn't work on Nano the same way. I don't even know how you do it on Nano. I think it's Control W on uh, in Nano. Yeah, I think it is Control W. Um, So yeah, it's just, there's too many little things and I I don't ever bother learning the correct way to do it in Nano. And so every time I use Nano, I get frustrated. So that's the the real reason that I don't 
that I don't like it. But again, I actually do like it. I am, I feel a great sense of relief when I open up, you know, when I'm on a, an unfamiliar system, I open up a terminal and I think, okay, I have to use an editor. What am I going to use? And I type in Emacs and it's not there. And I think, oh no, I'm going to have to use Vim. So then I, I type in on a lark, nano, and it appears. That is the, it's the best feeling. Uh, and then I close nano and copy um, micro Emacs to the computer, compile it really quick if I can, and then use that instead. But if I can't do that, then I'm back in nano and it's fine. Here's a cool trick with about nano that you may not know. So in user share nano, if you've, you've installed nano in the in the share directory in slash user slash share slash nano or if you've installed this somewhere else then it'll be you know wherever those shared files are with with the nano distribution are a bunch of nano rc files and they have a bunch of different nano rc files they've got one for awk they've got one for graph you remember graph we talked about it a couple episodes ago uh we've got uh a java lua uh what else lots lots and lots of different ones oh shell something for shell so these are all um syntax highlighting types of files so if you create a file in your home directory called nano rc then you can write include slash user share nano uh, for instance awk.nanorc close that and then I'm going to type in nano actually I'm not going to type in nano I'm going to type in nano test.awk there we go and now if I type in awk code I'll just do uh, let's do begin b-e-g-i-n curly brace it's highlighting this for me it's highlighting the keywords then I'll do let's let's just do a printf I don't know, a string, or uh, that's printf, quote, percent s, backslash n, and then we'll do comma, and we'll do hello world, close everything, semicolon, close that bracket, and then I'm going to save. So to save in nano, you do it at control O, and that's to write out. So I've just saved that, and then I'm going to do Control X, which exits. And now, of course, if I do a awk-f test awk, I get hello world printed to my terminal, just as one would expect. Cool. That's nice. Nano uh, test dot lua. Uh, this should be easy. We'll do a print quote uh, parentheses quote hello world close quote close parentheses semicolon write out exit and we'll do lua test lua hello world there you go and once again all the keywords and all of the the key symbols are given a color and that way if you forget to close a parentheses or a quote you notice because the the color changes so that's that's a really really nice feature that i feel like no one really talks about is the is the whole syntax highlighting in nano that's pretty useful and they're already there i mean that's what makes it really useful obviously the ability to do that is one thing but having them included in the distribution of the application that's pretty nice okay so i'm gonna open up a test document again i guess i'll just do test.txt boring boring old plain text and this this um this application is truly pretty simple so i mean it, it opens up blank screen with a header across the top and a little menu bar at the bottom. I think in a way the menu bar is a little bit deceptive because I see that menu bar and I think, okay, well, that's all I can do. Those are my only options. So for instance, searching, the, the, the word search is not in that menu. There's 
there's one control w where is and that seems a little bit confusing because you're not really used to, to, to thinking of okay i want to search or find as a where is you don't really that's not something that comes immediately to mind so i i think i skipped over that probably a hundred times before i realized that the search function was right there in the menu it, it also might not help that it's right next to to write out so I've got get help write out where is cut text justify and so on. So write out and where is I think in my head they just kind of merged into one thing and I knew I didn't want to write my file yet. I just wanted to search for some some text and of course it becomes difficult to do that uh, when you're insisting in your head that it's control S to search which is n not at all correct but control W indeed does search. So I could type in something, so for instance, penguin, return, and it takes my cursor down to the first occurrence of penguin. Okay, that's pretty neat. Um, let's see what happens if I search for a word where there are two instances of that word. It takes me to the first instance of penguin, and then I don't have my search function open anymore. But if I do a control W again, then it comes with comes back up with the search function down at the bottom of the screen, but in brackets, it now has the word penguin, so if I just hit return, then it takes me to the next one. Is that the fastest way to scroll through a file containing, I don't know, 33 instances of the word penguin? No. Obviously, you're hitting two two keys to, to advance each time, and that would get rather annoying, because you're, you're, it's two keys for the, you know, with that auto cost one in your mind. Um, that's the only way I know to do it, though, and that's certainly the way that they provide in their menu. So I'm going to kind of assume that that's that's how it's done. Now there is um, an F6 key if you don't want to do the control the control key, and that that feels like it speeds it up a little bit. So if it's I think it's F6 to search. So F6 takes me to the first instance. F6 to the second. So it's F6 return. F6 return. F6 return. So but still it's it's more key presses than I think you want to do repetitively. So that's the search, and that's probably one of the things that, that bugs me the most, is just that sort of, that workflow of having to hit the key twice to, to advance. I just, I want to get in search mode, and then I just want to hit one key to keep advancing through the different instances. That's just me, though. Or it could be just me, I don't really know. Um, you can go page up, page down with control V or control Y. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of these things are just you know, they're just things that people sort of are used to from, from Pico, and, and that's why they do it that way. Um, for me, I, I don't know why you, or, or rather, uh, V and Y would be the keys. Like, V, I get it, it's pointing down, it's also, um, oh wait, is it? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, it is pointing down. It's on the bottom of a QWERTY keyboard, right? I don't remember where the V is on a QWERTY, yeah, it is, okay. And then Y is at the top of the QWERTY keyboard, so I guess that kind of makes sense. And to be fair, that's the same on Dvorak as well. So um, control, control Y and V in terms of well, this is top row, this is bottom row. It still makes sense on Dvorak. So that's a nice, that's a nice accidental feature, I guess. That for instance, Vim does not is not able to provide uh, with its home row, uh, with its focus on the home row. Okay, let's see. So cutting a uh, a line, that's a it's, it's an important one for me. Um, I do that a lot, especially since I write, when I write um, like show notes or, or an article or, or really anything uh, that's 
that's not in you know that's not formatted it's in either i don't know xml or markdown or or plain text or, or i don't really write in plain text I, if if i was going to do plain text it would be either markdown or ascii doc but either way when i do that i have separate i i put each sentence on a new line and i do that for version control stuff because if you if you do that then you can diff a file and know exactly what line has been changed and sort of where it has been changed and so on whereas if your text file has paragraphs not line delimited then the diff sees one change to a paragraph as the whole paragraph changing even if it's just a misspelled word that you've corrected it sees the whole paragraph now as a different paragraph whereas if you put line breaks between each after each sentence then your version control sees that just that one sentence as having changed which is a lot better and of course when you render it out of course it eats that line break anyway so who cares so cutting lines is something that I do frequently and the way that you do it in nano is the same that you do it in Emacs control K control K for cut it's that simple what I always forget though is that in Emacs it's control Y, but in nano it is control U to, I guess, uncut, maybe? So that's tricky for me. It's not tricky for everyone, it is tricky for me. Or, and probably tricky for other Emacs users, I, I guess, if they're not used to, to nano. Okay, so another really important one is selecting more than one line. And that is control shift, or shift control if you prefer, and then the number six which gives you a selection or what they call a mark. And once you're in that mode, you're in mark mode or selection mode, I guess, then you can arrow or control P and control N for previous line, next line, and you can see you'll see your selection follow your cursor. So I can select a bunch of of lines and then cut them with control K. And then, of course, we uncut it with control U and you've just moved a big block of lines. So that's huge. It's important. It's very something, again, that I commonly use when, when working in text files. It is something that I frequently forget on Nano because I don't use Nano enough to remember it, and it is different uh, on Emacs. In fact, strangely, it's so ingrained, I think, in my muscle memory, I don't even, I'm not sure that I know how to do it. Oh, yes, I do. Control space. I think there's another way, though. I think there's another keyboard combination that I used to use at work because for some reason. Um, anyway... Control C cancels a an active command, so that's kind of like a Control G in a G in Emacs. Control G as in GNU. Um, that's the kind of the panic mode. And then Control um, Oh Control O is the writing out, and Control X is quitting, which I've, I think I've already I've kind of already said. So yeah, that's um, that's what those are. That's that's the that's um, the basics of of Nano. There are lots of other functions though, so Control G in Nano, unlike uh, in in Emacs, takes you to your help menu for Get Help, and this will go through. I mean, it lists all of the all of the what I would think of as functions for you. It, it's one of those things where I think print this out, put it put it by your computer if you're going to actually learn Nano. That would be I I would think that that would be the the way to go. Like that would you would have to do that. I mean, if you wanted to get really good and comfortable in Nano, that's what you would. I would expect that's what you have to do. But here's actually the really great thing about Nano. This is why Nano should be the default text editor on every Linux distribution out there. 
I know that's a crazy thing to say from someone who doesn't actually enjoy using Nano. But this is why Nano is so great. You sit down in front of an unfamiliar system, you launch a, a text editor, and it's Nano. Everything is explained to you on the bottom of the screen. You you understand how to use the thing. You understand how to use it at the most rudimentary level. Yes, it might be annoying because you're not very good at it yet, but you know how to use it. Compare that to opening Vim, which has a, its default mode is not even the mode in, in, in which you can type text on the screen. So it's a text editor that when you open it, you are unable to edit text or type text. I mean, technically, you can edit. That's that's the point. You're in edit mode, so you can do that. But it that just feels weird to me, and I think it would feel weird to a lot of other people. That's not actually to disparage Vim, because I'm about to say the same thing about Emacs. You you open up Emacs, and yes, you can you can start typing right away. That's you get that, but the the commands are completely just foreign to everyone. I mean, the idea that you would need to press two sets of key, of modifier keys before, or two iterations of a modifier before you can do something like open a file, Control X, and then Control F. Wait, so what? Control X F? No, Control X and then Control F. What? what how do you, How does that work? It's so confusing to people, you know? I mean, yeah, Emacs has a menu at the top. That's cool. How do you get to that menu if you're just in a terminal, though? That's confusing for people. So there are drawbacks. There are drawbacks to these highly efficient, really amazing text editors that you and I love and live in all day long. That's the editor that we use. It's the editor that we love. Well, they're also very difficult, and they, they have a learning curve. Nano is simple, and it doesn't really have a learning curve, and whatever learning curve there is, is written for you at the bottom of the screen. It's really easy to figure that out. Now, you'll only be doing a couple of things. You'll be searching for text, you'll be saving your file, and you'll be exiting. And that's it. That's all you'll you'll know how to do. Well, and, and editing text. You'll be typing text in. But And, and that's mostly, you know, for, for the times that you're going to dip into Nano, that's, that's what you're going to be doing. I'm envisioning the, the, the scenario that I find myself in, and you probably find yourself often in as well, dear listener, where you're logging into a server or something, and you realize that, oh, it's time to modify this configuration file for the web server that I've just installed, or whatever. And so you go into whatever text editor your that system provides you, and, oh, it's Nano. So you search for the, the option, or the, you know, the configuration option that you need, to change, go over to the ch- option, add the text, save the file, quit the editor. It happens all the time. We, we all do it. it. It happens. And if it's not a server and a web server, then it's a computer and a, um, a dot .rc file of some sort, dash, dot .bash rc, or, or dot um, .profile to, to change w- what, um, what, what shell comes up by default or what, what your prompt is. Whatever. I don't know. Point is, those quick edits, that set of functions, the search, save, and quit, and and obviously edit text, that's the core of that text editor. That's what you need to do with as little friction as as possible. And Nano puts those options down at the bottom of your screen, makes it pretty easy to do those things, not the searching, but, you know, close enough, and that's it. That's all you need to do. It's it's easy. And this this is the obvious correct choice. Nano is a very small editor. It is very simple. I don't know that there is a huge contingency of people out there who are really, really familiar with Pico at this point, who just absolutely, you know, we're, we're, we're banking on 80% of the people 
knowing Nano because they all know Pico. I don't know if that's the situation anymore. It probably was at some point. I don't I don't know that that's the case now. But what we do have now, I think, is is at least people logging in and not knowing an editor. Nano is a great my first editor for Linux, and it should be the default. I think Ubuntu was probably one of the first distributions to to make that the default editor. I could be making this up. It could be a false memory of mine. But if I recall correctly, Ubuntu was at least at the forefront of saying editor variable is going to be set to Nano, not to Vim. And good for them. That was the I think that was a great choice to make. And I think a lot of other distributions should do the same thing. Now, I know a lot of people are very, very, very happy with Vim as their default editor. And and honestly, I'm, I, I am much happier with Jove or Emacs as my default editor. But I think if, if you know enough to, to complain that Nano is the default editor, then you're no longer the target. You're someone who knows the difference between Nano and Vim or Emacs or whatever. Therefore, you are also someone who knows how to change the default. So I think Nano being the default is a wider, it's casting a wider net to a lot more users and it's kind of letting those users in in a friendly and inviting way. I think that's important. There's that's that's a significant thing. And you have to kind of think back if you can because not everyone can remember the time that a terminal itself was confusing. Like uh, the the idea of computing in a black box with text in it, that was mystifying. Like how is that computing if there's not a window or a a file manager? Like how is that computing? So if if that's confusing, then just imagine now someone says, "Okay, well you just need to edit this file." And the command for that is vi space slash etc slash blah.conf. And you do that, and you're doing it wrong, and you have the spaces wrong, and you have to do it several times. And finally you get it right, and then it opens up into this mysterious text editor. And then they say, oh, and by the way, now you need to go do the Vim Tutor so that you can learn how to use this text editor. And so now suddenly you've got this the, the, a dependency of, oh, you should have learned this first before trying to do this basic function. And it, it, it just keeps going back and back and back, and that's not a friendly experience. That's not a welcoming experience for people. Nano should be the default. Believe me, it pains me to say that, but it's just the, the it's just the truth. It's the logical and sensible truth. Send me email if you if you disagree. I'm I'm willing to hear your arguments. And and I don't think for the record, I don't think the argument of well that's what I had to do to learn is a valid argument. And I I don't think that um the argument of well in the long run it's it's better to learn them is is a valid argument. And I don't think that well you should you should enjoy having to learn Vim or Emacs or whatever. That's not a valid argument. Like, none of these things that presume that that, that other users are exactly on the same track as as me or you, th- those aren't... That's not... Again, that's not the target that I think we're aiming for, actually. Because that target, we're, we're quite happy to modify the environment. In fact, modifying the environment is part of the expectation. It, it's the users who who aren't completely sold on this idea yet, that we don't want to scare away. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to be too delicate here. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to trick people. I'm not trying to bring them in and, and, and try to make them believe that Linux is really easy and that hey they should just uh, they should just 
come into the flock of open source because everything's super easy here. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I still think that there's a lot of challenges to be met, even when the default text editor is nano. But at the same time, I, I don't think that the the kind of, um, what, what's it called, like a, a trial by fire or whatever, an, init- an initiation uh, ceremony, I don't think that needs to be now figure out how to use our stupid text editors. That's just That doesn't work for me. That doesn't make sense to me. I think having applications that sort of default to to sort of sensible explanations and expectations, I think that's a really strong feature to have. And, and I think that that's what Nano does for us. As much as you or I may not enjoy using Nano, it's still a darn good application for people who don't necessarily know yet how to use a text editor embedded into a terminal session or a console, a text console. So there you go. Those are my thoughts on Nano. I know they're very controversial and um, they're very bold, lot, making lots of bold statements here. In the next episode... We're going to talk about Nano. No, we're not. We just did. We're going to talk about Normalize and PA Mixer and maybe a couple other things. We'll see. But those are those are two good ones and both audio feature, uh, audio, audio themed, so that's kind of a nice feature. Okay, let's uh, go and have more coffee, but separately. Don't come back this time. This is the end. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Share my wings.